Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Well, Psalm 84, let me start with a question. Uh, where is home for you? Where is home? In 1964, a homesick musician called Paul Simon was sitting at Widnes Railway Station in Cheshire and he wrote a song on a scrap of paper. It's called Homeward Bound. It goes like this. I'm sitting at the railway station, got a ticket to my destination, on a tour of one night stands, my suitcase and guitar in hand, and every stop is neatly planned for a poet and a one-man band. Homeward Bound. I wish I was Homeward Bound. Home, where my thoughts escaping. Home, where my music's playing. Home, where my love lies waiting silently for me. Every day's an endless stream, cigarettes and magazines. And each town looks the same to me, the movies and the factories. And every stranger's face I see reminds me that I long to be homeward bound. How important is home in every culture and every generation? How important it is to the homeless and to exiles to know where we might belong. The Bible records the song of some exiled people who sang by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, there we wept as we remembered Zion. How important it is to know where your home really is. And you know, I just don't mean your postcode and your address. The places we call home and really basically rain shelters, home means where you belong, and especially with whom. Where you belong, and especially with whom. And this yearning for a good home is a universal experience for human beings. We all want one. And the Bible explains that this is an aspect of the way we were made, the way we were created by God. The Bible begins with a loving God making us to live with him in a relationship of love, in a good home. So we are only at home when we come to know our maker. St. Augustine famously wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. God created the first home for humankind, but in their rebellion against the Creator, our first parents were exiled. They were cast out of home, banished from, from the Garden of Eden out east, and the way back was blocked and guarded. They were homeless in a heartless world, and so we still yearn for a home. Now that's how the Bible begins. But the Bible ends with a great homecoming. Heaven and earth are united in climactic harmony. God himself comes down to live with his people and be their God. In the book of Revelation, a loud voice announces, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's the world we look to, the home we all want. And so as creatures who were made for home, we look forward to that. And actually, longing to be home, you find it's natural that we inevitably become homemakers. Whenever you plonk a human being down somewhere on the planet, you find they make a home. Some of you know this. 
because you spend an unhealthy amount of time looking at the right move website. <laughs> Others make home by looking at farrow and ball paint samples. You know you can't afford it, but at least you can get the sample. There's IKEA catalogues or bidding for furniture on eBay to make the perfect home. Home is where you hang your boots up. Home is where you feed your cat. Home is where you keep your collection of first edition Penguin books. Home is where the heart is. It's where I belong. And especially with whom. Now we're doing this short series in the Psalms, as you've heard, this summer. And the purpose of the series is to give us some space to reflect on our spiritual lives. Our lives are so busy, we're very distracted, that we often fail to reflect on how we're really doing in the places that matter. But in the summertime, things are a bit slower, and we have opportunity to take stock and reflect, and to some degree to refocus and recalibrate. Summer's a great time to do this, perhaps better than the new year. And summer is now nearly over. <laughs> the football season has begun. School starts tomorrow. In about two or three weeks, thousands of students will descend on Manchester. The new year is beginning. So how are you doing? Now, Psalm 84 is a great place to finish our short series because it asks this fundamental question. Where is your home? Where is your home? Where do I belong? And with whom? Just look with me at a, verse, a few verses here. Verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. Verse 3, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Verse 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. It's about dwelling, it's about houses, it's about home. And these reflections on home and where we live and where we belong are set within a wider frame that is called blessing. Blessing. That means the good and happy life. Now the book of Psalms begins with blessing, back in Psalm 1. It starts, the whole book begins. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but their delight is on the law of the Lord and on their his law they meditate day and night. In other words, if you want to live the good and happy life, you need to live by the word of God. And the second psalm goes on, talking about God's king, and says at the end of the psalm, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So the good life, the blessed life, begins with God's word and God's king. And now here in Psalm 84, we have three promises of blessing. Three promises. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. Verse 12, Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now each of these three promises of blessing actually has a different mood. And it frames a different section of the psalm. The first one is wistful. The second one is resolved. And the third is actually contented and fulfilled. Because these three movements, wistful, resolved, and fulfilled are three things that are very important for us to understand about the spiritual life, the life of faith. They're crucial for us to grasp today. The first blessing is wistful because we're in exile at the moment. We don't dwell with God as we really want to. We wistfully look forward to the world being put to rights. We then need to resolve to go on pilgrimage, to be in a journey of faith through our lives, 
which is the only thing that can help us make the dry valley into a place of springs. And thirdly, we have to look forward to the time when we will be fulfilled and content in the presence of God. So, how do you get the good and happy life, the blessed life? By learning where your true home is. By learning where your true home is. So I'm going to just speak a little bit about these three movements in the psalm, and then we'll sing again. And then one of our elders at the church, Joe Byrne, will come and lead us at the Lord's table where we remember with bread and wine the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection for our justification. Three movements in this psalm. Three words. Yearning, journeying, returning. Yearning, journeying, and returning. Firstly, yearning, verses 1 to 4. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord, and my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So many songs about home are also love songs. There's a great song called These Foolish Things Remind Me of You. It's a jazz standard. It was written in the 1930s, and it was immortalized by Billie Holiday. And the story behind These Foolish Things, which has been performed by hundreds of people since, is that the writer, who was an Englishman called Eric Mashvitz, was in love with an actress called Anna Mae Wong. And he was separated from her. She was in Hollywood. He was back in England. And the lyrics of the song evoke his longing to be with her after they parted and he was back in England. He says, A cigarette that bears a lipstick's traces, an airline ticket to romantic places, and still my heart has wings. These foolish things remind me of you. A tinkling piano in the next apartment, those stumbling words that told you what my heart meant. A fairground's painted swings, these foolish things, remind me of you. You came, you saw, you conquered me. When you did that to me, I knew somehow this had to be. A love song. And Psalm 84 is a love song from a poet, one of the sons of Korah, to the living God. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord, and my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. He thinks about the temple, which was a grand building at the center of the culture and the center of the city of Jerusalem. And as he thinks about the temple, get this, his heart skips a beat. Why is that? Well, it's not about the architecture, as beautiful as the temple was. It's about who lives there. For the ancient Jewish people, the temple was sacred because that's where the living God had moved in. Now, though they knew that God fills the highest heavens, he fills everything that is, the whole cosmos, God also had promised to live with his people in a special, particular way at the temple in Jerusalem. So the writer thinks about it. And then in his mind's eye, he thinks about up high in the eaves of the temple, he could see sparrows or swallows that had made and managed to make a nest up there. And he says, you lucky birds, you get to be that near to the living God and to be there all the time. Look at what he says. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself. Just to be near you, Lord, he says. Now, why is the Lord's dwelling place so lovely? Because he himself is desirable and beautiful above all things, above all others. God is beautiful, and God is desirable. 
Do you ever think of him like that? Well, just think for a moment. God is the source of all beauty. He's the definer of everything that's good and lovely. Whatever delightful thing that we experience in life has its source in God, and he excels it and is greater than it. The Bible says that the Lord dwells in the beauty of his holiness. Now this psalm writer knows all this, and it strikes a chord deep within him, and as he thinks about the Lord God and the temple, something starts to yearn inside him, almost a burning. Oh Lord, he says, just to be near you. Jonathan Edwards was an American intellectual in the 18th century. He was a, a very, very gifted philosopher. He grew up knowing the Bible inside out, but he actually grew up thinking of God as a distant, powerful, and angry being. Distant. And then one day he was meditating on this verse from the Bible, and he had a big breakthrough. Here's the verse. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now unto the King eternal... Immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And suddenly, Jonathan Edwards had a breakthrough. It's as if his whole way of looking at the world shifted. He had an inward sweet delight in God. He, read, he wrote these words. This is 18th century. I read the words. They came into my soul. And as it were, diffused right through it a sense of the glory of God. A new sense quite different from anything I'd ever experienced before. Never any words in scripture seemed to me as those words did. I thought with myself, how excellent a being that was. And how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to God in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him. And from about that time, I began to have a new understanding and ideas of Jesus and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. I had an inward, sweet sense of these things that at times came into my heart, and my soul was led away in pleasant views of them. And my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Jesus, and the beauty and excellency of his person, and the lovely way of salvation by free grace. You see, something, we have got something greater even than this psalm writer had. He knew about God, the great creator, but we know about Jesus, the eternal son who came to become one of us that he could buy our salvation. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. We know Jesus. Christian friend, have you ever experienced anything like this? My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. I hope you have. I hope you have. And if you've not, or if your desires are feeble, then let me urge you today to seek God, to seek him with all your strength, to pursue him in prayer and meditating on his scripture and ask him to make your desire for him stronger. You see, most of our problems in life come from the fact that our desires are too weak. Our desires are too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. 
when infinite joy is offered to us in Jesus. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by an offer of the holiday at the seaside. We're far too easily pleased. How could you fall in love with a five-bedroom house and fail to fall in love with the one true homemaker? How could you fall in love with a gorgeous person and not love the one who made all beauty? How could you wonder at the Milky Way, the shooting stars, the sunset or the mountain landscape, and not worship the one whose glory these things dimly reflect? Now, that's, I'm talk, I'm, so far I've been talking mostly to, to Christians, to believers, but I want to also talk to people here who are looking into the faith, maybe sceptical but curious. You're not a Christian yet, and to, to you, this all sounds very remote. Just tune back in here for a moment. Let me speak to you, because I think you know what yearning feels like. I think you know what yearning feels like for something greater than just this world and this experience. Before he became a Christian, C.S. Lewis was an atheist and uh, a, a very brilliant scholar, and he had three experiences in life that he described as joy. But what he means by joy isn't just being happy. He means having a longing for something that was so delightful that you would even long for the longing. The first one came when he was quite a young child. He smelled the fragrance of a flowering currant bush in the garden of a house, and it, it summoned a memory from his early childhood of another house, another home. And he experienced a delectable sense of desire which overwhelmed him. Before he'd worked out what was happening, the experience passed, leaving him longing for the longing that had just ceased. Everything else that had ever happened to me was insignificant in comparison with that yearning. The second experience came when he was reading a book by Beatrix Potter. And as he was reading it, something in it sparked an intense desire for, the, for autumn. Once more, he experienced this sense of intoxicating desire for something beyond what this world could give. And the third time came when he read a poem, and he found the impact of the words devastating. I was uplifted into huge regions of sky, and I desired with almost sickening intensity something never to be described. Yet even before it finished, the desire passed, and he was left wishing that there was more. And I wonder if there is something in your heart, friend, that brought you here today, just that longing for something more than you've known in your experience. That's because the living God is drawing you to himself. And I ask you to, to continue pursuing him. In the Peter Jackson, Jackson version of King Kong, great classic film, the great ape who's been brought to New York City and climbed up a huge skyscraper, sits on the top, and it's not long before they're going to shoot him down and kill him, and he sees the sun rise. And as he looks on the glorious sunrise over the city, the ape sighs deeply. And this is a real deep sigh, and then he kind of beats his chest like this. And eventually he falls to his death, and on the ground, the verdict comes. It was beauty that killed the beast. But in our psalm, beauty doesn't kill, it inspires. The beauty of God, the desire for God, inspires people to action, to resolve. Look at, with me at uh, our second section here, journeying in verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Bacar, 
They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. See, these people, uh, our hearts, their hearts are set on pilgrimage. They want to go to meet God at the temple. And so they get up and go. They pack their bags and pack their donkey or whatever else it was they had. And they make the great journey. But note what comes with pilgrimage. Verse 6, they pass through the valley of Bacar. Now, scholars aren't 100% sure where this is, or even if it represents a real place, because Bacar basically represents dryness. Dryness. It talks about an arid place where only certain kinds of trees can grow because there's no water for them to put their roots down deep. And it says that they pass through the valley of Bacar. You will have to pass through it. And every disciple of Jesus Christ finds this to be the case. You may start off the life of faith in wonderful honeymoon circumstances. Some of you just got back from honeymoon. Wonderful, pleasant circumstances, I hope, (laughs) and full of beans. And the life of faith starts a bit like that for some of us. But sooner or later, you hit the valley of Bacar. Health issues trapped in an economic situation or a job that you can't get out of. Loneliness, heartache, spiritual dryness. You feel that God has deserted you. You're in the dark. Grief and loss. You're in the valley. Now, your heavenly Father knows you, and he loves you. He allows these dry times into your life. Why? to make you more beautiful, to refine you, to teach you to trust him in the valley, to meet you there. But beware, turn away from him in the valley and you could become bitter and resentful and self-pitying and shrink into a smaller version of yourself, asking, why me? You distance yourself from God, you harden your heart. Listen, we've got a choice to make, how we respond in the valley. And perhaps some of you are here today because God has allowed you into that dry place to make you seek him for the first time. Pursue him. He's not far from you. Look at what these pilgrims experience in verse 6. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. They make it a place of springs. So they're going through the dry place, but somehow in their dry experience, they make it full of refreshing water. They're strengthened, it says. In the valley, verse 7, they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. How can they be strengthened in that place? Because they've learned to lean on God in the journey. Verse 8, they've learned to pray. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. They've learned to pray. And they've learned to lean on the anointed one. Look at verse 9. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favour on your anointed one. Who is the anointed one? Here's a clue. Another way of saying this is Messiah. Who is the Messiah, the anointed one? You know the answer. It's Jesus, Messiah. Jesus Christ. He is our shield. Look on our shield, O God. The shield puts itself between us and our mortal enemies who are firing arrows or taking blows at us. The shield takes the deadly blows on itself. The shield is destroyed so that we can be safe. That's what this psalm is leading you to. Go on the journey. Follow the living God. 
Go into the dry place. And when you're there, learn to pray and cry out and lean on the shield. Lean on Jesus, Messiah. The psalm calls us to yearning. The psalm calls us to journeying. And finally, it calls us to returning. Verse 10. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. At the end of the epic story, The Lord of the Rings, which, if you've never read it, is, is worth your time, more than a thousand-page book, it ends with a little character called Sam Gamgee going home. And as he goes back, he turns to buy water and comes back up the hill. And the day is ending, and his heart's full of sorrow and conflicting emotions. And he went on, and there in the house was yellow light and fire within, a warm place. And the evening meal was ready, and he was expected. And Rose, his wife, drew him in and set him in his chair and put little Eleanor, his daughter, on his lap. And he draws a deep breath, and he says, well, I'm back. That's how the book ends. That's a spoiler alert, by the way. <laughs> well, I'm back. That's how the story ends. Now, how about your story? How's your story going to end? Psalm 84 ends in the house of the living God. This house is so great that it's better to spend one day there than more than three years somewhere else. What a comparison. I'd rather be here for one day than a thousand days. It's a comparison. Comparison of status. Would I rather be a doorkeeper in God's house? Pretty low-down job. Or live in the tents of the wicked? No comparison. I'd rather live in be at God's house, just standing by the door, letting people in and out. The lowest position is preferable because of verse 11. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose way of life is blameless. This God is a sun. He gives light and life and joy to all who turn to him. He's a shield. We've already thought about that. A protector, a refuge a strong hiding place. He bestows favor and honor. A better way of putting this is grace and glory. He, shows, he showers grace upon you, undeserved kindness, and he gives you glory as well as his, you glorifying him. That is the God we serve. No good thing does he withhold from those who trust him. So we finish. Blessed, happy is the one who trusts in you. That's the way home. Trust in him. That's the good and happy life. It's to trust in the Lord in all the changing scenes of life. Trouble, sorrow, and joy. It's to love Jesus and follow him. So, friends, let me say, in closing, let's get on the journey. Get on the bus. Together. You know, we live in the most distracted age in human history. Some of you guys, I can see all your faces, by the way, some of you guys have not been able to concentrate for this sermon, which is 25 minutes long. You're so distracted. Some young people I know, who won't be named, can't look at you for five minutes without looking at a computer screen or a phone. We live in the most distracted age. We live in a culture where people have almost no interest, time, for God or the Bible or Jesus. It's at most a historical curiosity. You can't go to them and say, I want to talk about the God-shaped hole in your heart. They don't feel any hole in their heart. Their life is almost completely sorted without God. That's the world we live in. 
We need each other if we're going to have our hearts set on pilgrimage. We need each other. Now, very practical, two very practical things to do. One, join a life group at our church. And two, become a member. There's a ways of going on the journey together. Our membership document, actually, used to be called The Journey Home so that we could be on pilgrimage together. And Rich is holding that seminar, which he mentioned, that introduction lunch. Go on it. Learn about our vision as a church to be a gospel community and to fill Manchester with communities of light. And at the moment, we're sorting out all our different life groups for, uh, for the next year. Come and talk to us. Come and talk to me, talk to Rich, and we'll put you in a group. Refocus now. Don't be like that bird flitting around. Learn to live in the presence of God. And as we come in a minute to the Lord's table, remember his death for us. We're going to think on the one who undertook a long journey and left his home to win a people for himself. Jesus. You know, he was known as homeless. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, Once he said once. Jesus lost his home so that you and I could gain one. A heavenly home. An eternal rest. He said, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? That's our home. If we trust in him, one day he will take us home. So as we take the supper together in a minute, think on him and worship him and follow him. Let's pray. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.